0: all right well good morning good morning church good morning man you all were on it this morning well done it was a lively good morning was probably one of our better ones yet so well done there hey if um if we haven't yet met my name is paul and i have the privilege of being the teaching pastor here um if you're a guest this morning again really grateful that you're here welcome members regular attenders uh welcome back so glad to have you I will say if you are a guest this morning, uh, really one thing that we would ask of you uh, at some point throughout the morning, you'll see a QR code, hopefully, uh, on a chair in front of you. If it's not on the chair in front of you, it may be on the floor because they fall off a lot. If you would scan that QR code, it will direct you to lpguest.com. While you're there, there, we have a digital guest information card. If you take just a second, fill that guest information card out. We'd love to be able to connect with you. And at the bottom, you'll see we have several different partner ministries Uh, that we partner with as a church, select one of those ministries, we'll donate $5 to that ministry in your honor, just as a way of saying thanks. So if you would do that, we'd love to donate, and we'd love to connect uh, with you. Today, we are in week three of a series we've called Playlist, Uh, and the reason for that title, the reason for that name, is because we are working through five different psalms, And the Psalms, uh, traditionally, uh, throughout all generations of believers, have really been the the hymnal or the the prayer book for believers in God. Uh, The way we're going to say it throughout this series is that um, God writes the lyrics of our souls in the Psalms. God, God really connects with our souls and allows us to connect with God in the Psalms because no matter what you're going through, No matter what you're walking through, no matter what season of life you are currently in, there are 150 psalms, and I can guarantee you there is a psalm that meets the experience you're currently in. And so I want us to be encouraged as we open up the Word of God, as we look to the psalms, to have the psalms really read our hearts, to give us language for what it is we're going through, language that we can speak back to God. And so today we're going to be in Psalm 81, uh, but before that, I, I want to get into a little bit of, of a, um, a race of technology that took place in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. Maybe a weird place to start, but at the time, uh, toward the turn of the century, uh, there was an all-out race for manned flight, an all-out race for who could be the first one to create an aircraft that could fly with a person in it. Well, there, was, um, there were several sort of front-runners uh, for this, but, but one of the primary was a guy named Samuel Pierpont Langley. Everybody heard of him? Nope? Okay, great. So uh, Langley, he was brilliant. Uh, he was absolutely uh, brilliant. He was a professor at University. Uh, He was some very important role at the Smithsonian. Uh, He was an an astronomer. Uh, I mean, the dude was, was brilliant, and his brilliance really made him sort of the front runner to be the guy who would figure out how to get a man. Into flight. And because he was the front runner, he would receive federal funding from the US government and from the Smithsonian, which maybe seems like a conflict of interest, but anyway, we won't get into that. It was a long time ago. And and the press would sort of follow him everywhere he went, looking at his every move, and so the world would really read about what this guy was doing. Again, seemed to be the front runner. Now on the other end of the spectrum were a couple. Guys, the Wright brothers, and have we heard of them? Yeah, if you haven't, we've got issues, but uh, the Wright brothers, um, they uh, were on the exact opposite end of the spectrum of Mr. Langley. They had actually no high school diploma, which is amazing, um, graduate school kids, um, but they, they, they were sort of these lowly guys coming out of nowhere. They, they had a bicycle shop and a printing press and and man, they just they sort of just had this, this vision, this bigger mission, that they realized that that manned flight would change the course of history. And because they had the sort of guiding why and reason behind what they were doing, they persevered and they kept going no matter the difficulties and no matter the circumstances. And, and the reason we know the Wright brothers, and we don't know Pierpont, whatever his name was, Langley is because there was a difference of mission. There was a difference of an understanding of why it is that they were doing what they were doing. There's an author and speaker named Simon Sinek, and he would attribute that, that the, the Wright brothers achieved the mission of, because they had a right why, but, but Langley didn't achieve because he had the wrong why. And the evidence of that is when Langley heard that the Wright brothers achieved flight, he quit. He gave up. His why was actually about money, power, and prestige. It was actually a what. It wasn't a true why. Now, what in the world does that have to do with Psalm 81, right? It's a fair question. Or church, I, I believe, right, why we do what we do makes all the difference. Why we do what we do makes all the difference in the world, and I believe it makes all the difference in the world when it comes to worship of God. Why do we worship? Why do we gather on a Sunday morning? Why do we do these things? I believe Psalm 81 will give us an answer as to why we do the things that we do and the importance of them and the meaning of them. Because if we want to persevere in this life of faith, we need to understand why it is we do the things that we do. And so, all of that being said, I'm going to read Psalm 81 in its entirety so we all know where we're going. And then we're going to go from there. Psalm 81 says this, Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph. When he went out over the land of Egypt... I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulders of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress, you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah Selah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would, but listen to me. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up Out of the land of Egypt, open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of wheat. And with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. Again, I believe in this psalm, what we see is the why or the purpose for why it is we gather each week. And it's not the only why, to be clear, but I believe we do have a clear why that will guide us as we worship the Lord. And so the, sort of the main overarching why That we see here, I think, is this that God desires for us to gather because our gathering leads to His glory. Right? God desires for us to gather because our gathering leads to His glory. And we're going to sort of take that in two different parts. First, God desires for us to gather. Let me show you this. If you go back to verses four and five, I want to be really clear to show you where I get the points that I make. Because isn't it convenient for the preacher to stand up and say, hey, come to church? right? But, but the only reason I'm saying this is because God said it first. And I want it to be abundantly clear and obvious that this isn't me, this is the word of God speaking. And so it says this in verse 4, for it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. Now in the first half of verse 5, he made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt, right? Right? It's a decree that you do this, pointing back to verses 1, 2, and 3, the worship of the Lord, the singing, and such. And if you want a more specific sort of reference to what the psalmist is referencing here, look at Leviticus 23, verse 2. It says, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. And he goes on in Leviticus 23 to list these different sacred assemblies where God is commanding the people to gather together and to meet. And so the psalmist, a guy named Asaph, is is writing this to the choir master, basically the worship leader, to say, hey, direct the people in this. And if you think, maybe just the command to meet is maybe an Old Testament commandment. We live in a different age now. We live in the age of grace. We live in a post-resurrected Jesus world. And so, is there still a command to meet? Well, I would direct you to what the Apostle Paul says. The one whom God really commissioned to go out to the non-Jews. You're like, hey, I'm not a Jew. I'm not an Israelite. So is this command valid for me? Well, this is what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, beginning in verse 23. He says, let us hold unswervingly. It's a great word, difficult to say in public to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching so why do we gather right we gather because god has commanded us to And I think that's really important to see. Our primary motivation should never be to come to church out of obligation to another person, but out of obedience to God. And again, doesn't that just flip our understanding of why it is we're doing what we are doing? Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't care who you're coming to church with. That's not to say you should just disregard the person you're coming to church with. It's not to say you shouldn't be grateful for the person who, you know, dragged your butt here this morning, right? I, I I remember, you know, I say this all the time. But Easter 2016, I didn't want to go to church, but my then fiance, now wife, did. And so, what do you do? You go to church, and God used that to really save my soul. I believe. So it's not that the person is unimportant, but God's desire, I want to be clear here too, God's desire in our attendance is not merely for the attendance. God's desire is for us to desire him in our worship and in our attendance of worship. You see, merely showing up and being here, while I'm thankful you're here, my goal is not to slap you across the face if you didn't want to be here this morning. But God's desire is not for you just to be in attendance. God's desire for you is to desire him because that's what actually your soul was created to do. Your soul was created to be satisfied in communion and in fellowship with God. But Jesus ran into this all the time. One of Jesus' greatest frustrations in his earthly ministry was running across people who were going through religious uh, religious sort of activities without the heart. He says this in Matthew 15, 8 and 9. He says, This people honors me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Right? So God's desire is here, but yet there's this tension between don't just show up to show up. And so what was happening is these, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they were, they were going to all of the right things. They were showing up. They were tithing. They were doing every single thing right, and yet they missed Jesus. Shocking. Right? So again, God's desire isn't just to show up, but God's desire is something far greater. And so if, if the purpose is not just to go through the motions, what is true worship? What does true worship actually look like? And once again, we can go to the teachings of Jesus. John chapter 4. As Jesus is speaking to a sinful woman at a well, he says this, But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so the defining characteristic is this worshiping in spirit of truth. And you might be thinking, well, what does that mean? That's entirely unhelpful, Paul. It's fair. Well, I think when Jesus is saying this in the context, you see this woman at the well, she thought she had to worship in a specific place. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's not about the place necessarily that you are. It's about it's about." What is within you? It's not about attending this this location. It's about going to worship God. It's about about worshiping God in in spirit, not in in physical location. Again, it might be sounding a little bit confusing here. But again, I'm just trying to draw out what it is exactly Jesus is saying. And then in truth, what, what does that mean? What does it mean to worship in truth? Well, I think what Jesus is saying here is, look, don't worship other false gods. There is one God, yes, he exists as Father, Son, and Spirit, but there is one God. And so when you're worshiping in truth, there will be no other gods before you. There will be no idols before you. And so again, as we ask this question, why is it that we gather? We need to understand that we gather because God has commanded us to gather. And when we gather, God's desire for us is to desire him. So I think that covers maybe the first half of that initial statement I gave. So the second half of this is, is this, that God desires us to gather because our gathering leads to his glory. Right? It's not just single sort of mind. It's not just for us. Ultimately, God desires for us to gather because when we gather, it leads to God's glory. And when I say that, God receiving glory, I understand it might sound a little bit self-serving. Like, really? That's everything God wants? He just wants his Glory, And if I were talking about a person, it would be wrong to say that. But but God is the creator of all things. God is the only one who deserves ultimate glory. And that's what God desires from us. And I reference this passage quite frequently, but Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made. You and me, we were created for the glory of God. When all of creation sees humankind should see the glory, us reflecting the glory of God. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to the Father in heaven. So very clear, we, we were created for God's glory. But in all that we do, we must be giving glory to God. In everything we do, in everything we are. Colossians 1.16 says this, For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Again, just laying this foundation of when I'm making large statements like God desires for us to gather for his glory. I want it to be abundantly clear that this isn't just me, this is what the Bible is saying. And so then I think a logical next question could, we could ask is, well, how? How is it that our gathering leads to the glory of God? And it's not just why we do what we do, but it's also how we do what we do and what it is that we do. And in this, I think we can begin to go back into the psalm. If you notice in verses 2 and 3, what we saw was they were singing. They were playing instruments, right? What we see moving forward in verse 10, it specifically says they are remembering. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And finally, in verses 11 through 16, we see the people receiving. Verse 11 through 12, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. So again, what are they doing? They're singing, they're remembering, and they're receiving. So I want to just go through those one by one. How is it that singing brings glory to God? Valid question. Again, we just come in here, we just go through the motions. This is what we do. Why do we do that? (laughs) Why does somebody stand up here? Why does all this time and effort and attention go into this? Why do we do this? Again, I want to look at how they are singing. Some key words. I don't know if you noticed them. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine. Blow the trumpet. As you're getting these descriptions of how these people are worshiping, Again, all to the glory of God. What you see, this is sort of a lively thing, isn't it? It's like, is a little bit like, there's a lot going on here. And I was, I was like, I, you know, I think I like that. That's good, maybe, I don't know. But I, I started looking into how else the Bible describes how the people of God worship for the glory of God. And I found this really good article that, that gave these four points. It's, in the presence of God, his people fall on their faces in worship. And that's really small on your screens, but there's several different verses that show us this is what people are doing. It says, In the presence of God, His people raise their hands in worship. It says, In the presence of God, His people bow down in worship. In the presence of God, His people even dance in worship. Again, how do we do this? You know, church, I think oftentimes... When we gather as the church, when we gather as the body of Christ, it's really, really easy to think the way we do it is the way that's right. And it's really, really easy to think that when we look at other churches doing things a different way, we think, there's a lot going on over there, a little too excited. And on the other end of the spectrum, we think, boring, right? And yet, what we have here throughout the Bible is a variety of ways in which people worship the Lord, including shouting, including dancing, including bowing our heads, including, including making our chairs an altar, including raising our hands. And the reason I really want to focus on this and bring this out is because as we're asking this question and, and, and saying why it is we worship, it brings glory to God. I think in our church context, it's easy to put a governor on our worship. Here's what I mean. Maybe we're singing to the Lord, and you just feel like, man, these lyrics are so good, and you're just singing to the Lord, and all that's in your mind is just who Jesus is and what God is doing, and you just feel your hands going up, and you're like, I don't know what's happening, but I'm just excited about this. And then you open your eyes, and you look around, and you're like, I'm the only one with my hands raised, and you you get uncomfortable, and you put your hands back down because maybe the culture of the church doesn't do that. And so all of a sudden, when, when our worship was to serve to the glory of God, we allowed the culture in which we are within to put a governor on the way in which we express our worship. We say, oh, never mind. Just do what everybody else does. Here's the thing. It can happen on the other end of the spectrum. Maybe you're in a church where people are like dancing and running around and doing all sorts of stuff, and, and you're just in this moment where you're singing to Jesus, and maybe you're all excited, and you're like, no, I just man, I just want to like, just sit and just reverently, silently praise God. And then you look around the room and you see everybody else doing other stuff and you're like, well, I guess if I really want to worship God, I have to do that. And so you actually put a governor on right, true worship of God by limiting activity. And by actually saying, no, I have to do this other thing. Isn't that fascinating? And so, church, the point I want to make here, where I'm trying to lead us to, is to say that that our worship of God and the expression of our worship to God should not be denominational. It should be biblical. It shouldn't be dependent upon who we are affiliated with. Say, oh, the Charismatics, they worship that way, and the Baptists work that way, and the Presbyterians, do they even worship? Yet? I mean, we say, we say these things, and it's like, what? We fall into these trenches and grooves, and we say, this is the way we do it. This is the right way we do it. But then when we open the Bible, it's a digital version, it's still God's Word, okay? When we open the Bible, like, oh, man, people are dancing? That's uncomfortable, shouting, uncomfortable. There's a trumpet. Somebody's going to put in a request for a trumpet. It's probably going to get rejected. We'll see. Um, Like, I mean, there's so many different ways people are worshiping God. And church, what I want for us, again, we go back to the why. Why do we worship? Why do we go through these things for God's glory? And so then if we're coming together and we're putting governors on ourselves to worship in a specific way, just like everybody else, we are actually limiting and not doing the very thing God told us to do and the very reason we gather together. And so church, what I want for us, what I plead for us is that we would be a church who doesn't care what everybody else is doing, but is saying, God, what are you doing in this moment? And how is your spirit moving in me? And how does that work out? in me maybe for some of us that means we're clapping and saying amen maybe for some of us we're we're sitting at our chairs and again we're making them an altar maybe for some of us we're we're just silent maybe for some of us our hands are raised the point is not what you're doing the point is why you're doing it and i believe church that if we would just allow ourselves to be led by the spirit of god we would bring him a lot of glory and we would be functioning within the very design that we were created for to bring glory for Him. And we've got to see that. And so it's going to take us time, right? We're pretty new. Man, I, I just want to see us just like, I just, I'm worshiping Jesus, okay? I, whatever that looks like. Let's just worship Jesus. So that's, I think we see again, what are they doing? How are they doing it? Well, first, again, from those verses, we see they're They're singing. See, they're praising, and that's really important for us to see. Verses 6 through 10, we see Israel remembering, and specifically we see Israel remembering salvation. I know if know if you go back through that. Remember, he's talking through Israel, uh, talking about Israel, how they were in Egypt. He said, I relieved your shoulders of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress, you called, and I delivered you. And he goes on and on about these things different things in church. Every time we gather as a church, we need to remember what God has done for us through Christ. Every time. Maybe you come in on a Sunday morning, he's like, he's always saying the same thing. Jesus died for your sins. And we get numb to it. But the biblical pattern is to say that when the people gather, they remember the works of God. Because as we remember the works of God and what God has done, that ignites in us worship It ignites in us joy. It ignites within us glory to God. Because as we remember that we were all sinners dead in our trespasses, we were all dead, and yet Jesus still loved us. Jesus still pursued us. Jesus still wants us. He doesn't see us based upon our failures. He says, no, I love you. I know you're a screw-up, but I love you anyway. And he looks to the Father and he says, that one, he believes in my sacrifice, she believes in my sacrifice, they believe that that their sins are covered by my life. That's what Jesus says. When I was on the cross, I lived perfectly and I was pierced for their transgressions. Father, you poured your wrath out against sin upon me. And they believe in that. And so we don't see them as dead. We see them as heirs. Heirs in Christ, sons, daughters, children of the living God, vessels of the Holy Spirit. And again, what does that do? Serves the very function and the purpose of why we're here, to bring praise and glory to God. And so if you're here this morning, you're like, I don't know about all this stuff. I want to just plead with you that you would see what God has done for you, the lengths that God, God has gone to rescue you. You don't have to keep living in the shame of past mistakes. Through faith in Christ, you're a new creation in Christ. What that means is the old is dead and the new is here. So we do baptism. The old is dead underwater. The new is here above water. You are a new creation in Christ. Praise God. And every time we gather as a church, we need to remember what God has done. And Israel does it here. Now, the text continues on. Back to Psalm 81, verses 11 and 12. It says, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsel. See, in this, part of gathering is the people of God is to receive correction from God. Right, the correction's not from me. I'm a mouthpiece, right? My, my job is to, Lord willing, faithfully interpret what the Scriptures say and, Lord willing, deliver those to you. This is what God says, I, But when the people are gathering, they're being corrected. God is is going back and saying, look, remember Israel in the wilderness? They time and time and time and time and time and time time again messed it up. And the scariest thing I think God could ever do is to, to give us up to our own wills. Remember years ago, I was studying Romans 1. And I'm going to misquote it, I'm sorry. You can send me an email. But basically, within Romans 1, it says, God gave them up to their debased mind. And I remember processing that and thinking through my life pre Jesus and my debased mind and my pornographic addictions and, and my just warped view of people. And then when I read, God gave them up to their debased mind, I'm thinking, God, why didn't you give me up to my debased mind? I deserved it. Why didn't you give me up to my lust? Why didn't you give me up to my idolatry? Why didn't you give me up, God? Because he could have. And man, that just sort of wrecked my heart, because I didn't deserve it. <laughs> but God said, no, I'm not going to give up on you. I love you. I going to pursue you. Jesus goes after the one He says, no, no, I, I see your mess, I see your train wreck, and again, guilty. God didn't give us up to our debased mind. God didn't give us up to our brokenness, and that is worthy of praise. And then when he's saying, look, just listen to me, he goes on later in the passage, and he says, if you would have listened to me, I would have wiped away all your enemies. Do you ever wonder about how many blessings we miss out on because we don't obey the voice of God? If you would have done this, I would have done this. I have all of these promises for you throughout Scripture, and yet you repeatedly don't do them. And so then you're like, well, where's God? And he's like, I'm right here, just obey my voice. There's a tension there, I get that. But church, when we come together and we submit ourselves to the Word of God, once again, that brings glory to God. When we receive biblical correction, we forfeit personal authority. And there may be, I'm not going to say that, forfeiting personal authority is one of the greatest ways in which we express glory to God, because what the enemy wants us to do is to take personal authority. Remember what he did in the Garden of Eden? Hey, Eve, did God really say that? Surely the little tempting, little little things along the way. And so we're like, well, maybe, yeah, I think I probably know better here. I probably know better here. I probably know better here. And all of a sudden, we're just going our own way, doing our own thing. But when instead we look at the Word of God and we submit to the Word of God and we say, God, you know better than I do. God, I don't know what to do, but your authority is greater than my authority. What happens is the principalities of the world We're not just living here in flesh and blood. We're we're living in a spiritual world. They see that and they see what? People submitting to God? Glory to God. God's doing it again. He's saving people. People are changed. Dang it. (laughs) That's what the enemy would say. But God's doing it. God's saving. God's moving. And yet, our role here is to humbly submit say, God, if that's what you say, I don't always understand it. I don't always see it. I don't always agree with it. There are hard things in the Bible, I tell you what. There are things I read in the Bible, and I'm like, I wish it didn't say that. Confession moment. But it does, so I can't ignore it. We can't ignore it. Okay, God, you know best. I trust you. Submission to the authority of God. It's one of the greatest opportunities we have to function within our design purpose, to bring glory to God. So church, why do we worship? Why do we come together on a Sunday morning? Why do we serve? Why are there people giving their time this morning? So many people. Larry's out there. He served like 42 weeks in a row. I don't know. He, so many. Aaron, I don't think, has missed a week yet. I mean, so, I could. so many people. If I didn't say your name, it's not because I don't appreciate you. I just can't think right now. But so many people. Serving weekend. Why do we do it? Because it matters. God wants you here. I'm not just saying this because I'm the pastor. Right? Yeah, great. If we whatever. I hope we have reach a lot of people. I I really do, I hope. But the point is not to to have a big church. The point is to glorify God. The point is not to, to to build a kingdom, a little castle. Right? The point is not to have a little castle in our corner of the world and say, look at us. The point is to be a beacon for God's glory and then to multiply that out so that other communities can have the same. We don't want to be a mega church. We want to be a multiplying church. Can we do that? we plant churches all over this place so that there are beacons of God's glory in every single community? We need that church. And so as we come to a close this morning, I just want us to worship, because <laughs> that's what we were designed to do, and that's what God commanded us to do. And as we worship, it's just to bring praise and honor and glory to God. So, Maggie, uh, Megan and, and uh, excuse me, combine both their names, Megan <laughs> and Maggie are going to come up, and they're going to lead us in worship. And I just want this to be a time where we're like, I'm not focused on what other people are doing; I'm just focused on what God's doing. Just focus on what God's Holy Spirit is doing in me, and I'm just going to respond to that. And again, if that means you're sitting down, great. If that means your hands are, what well, it doesn't matter. What matters is where your heart is. And so i want to pray for us, and then we're going to worship. Father, I'm so grateful that you've commanded us to gather. <laughs> you're like a a loving parent who knows what's best for their children. And God, I, I ask that you would just help us listen to that and be obedient because it's good for our souls. And not only is worship of you just really, really, really good for our souls, it helps us function within our glory, or within, your, within our purpose for your glory. Excuse me. It helps us be what you've created us to be, image bearers of you. And, and so, Father, as we are about to just worship, would you send your spirit in a way that we, just, we don't care about how we look or what we're doing. We just care about, God, what you're doing. And we need your spirit to do that. We can't manufacture that. It's nothing we can do. Any words I say, it's, it's all you. We, we trust you. We ask you to do what only you can do. And so as we sing, lead us. And Father, again, just praise you and thank you that you do what you do. And you allow us to be a part of it. It's in Jesus' wonderful, mighty name that I come to you and ask these things. Amen.